And now it's time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod. And each time when I ride my bicycle into the Intergalactic Communication Centre at 2XX, I pass the burnt-out remnants of a scout hall set alight by some mindless vandal. But I was having a conversation with my daughter yesterday about the low people that you meet in the, some of the things that they can do. And I said, look, you really have to keep in mind those inspiring individuals, those people who do each day, amazing things and a couple of days ago i met an inspiring australian dr fiona wood who i interviewed on fuzzy logic a few days ago and next week we'll be bringing her talk that she did out at the anu and um i have to pinch myself to think it's such a privilege to talk to amazing australians and what they do the clever and talented people and the amount of energy they put into their work and i have a feeling that uh, my next guest today is one of these people because I've been looking at your bio, Lynn, and uh, it's very impressive. So I'm talking to Professor Lynn Bilston. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, Rod. And welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Well, thank you. Now, uh, Professor Bilston is a Principal Research Fellow at NURA, NHMRC Senior Research Fellow, Conjoint Professor, Faculty of Medicine, New South Wales, University of New South Wales. What's a conjoint professor? Okay, that basically means I, I work at a medical research institute, but the conjoint is my university appointment. So it's not a paid university appointment, it's, it's an honorary appointment. Oh, is it a bit like an adjunct professor? Yeah, it's a bit like that. Ah, okay, I keep finding new variations of the professor title. Yes, universities <laughs> like different, different ways of calling things just to make everybody confused, I think, sometimes, but it means the same thing. <laughs> ah, okay. And you are also an honorary senior lecturer at School of Aerospace Mechanical and Mechatronic Engineering in University of Sydney. I am, indeed. Now, I find that a really amazing uh, mix of things you have in your bio there. How come it's so... How did you get to be so diverse? Well, I was originally trained as an engineer. Uh, I think when I left school, I was interested in medicine, but decided that I didn't want to be a clinician, so I went off and did engineering. I come from an engineering family. Um, but I was always very interested in medical problems, and so I did my postgraduate training uh, looking at spinal cord injury, actually, and, and how mechanical loading actually affects the spinal cord during injury. Uh, and most of the work that I do in one way or another is related to how the, the soft tissues of the body respond to mechanical forces, so particularly the, the nervous system, but uh, in a couple of other applications as well. Ah, so here's a question out of left field for you. What, what's the physiological response to a pinch? <laughs> Ooh, well, you, you are compressing uh, nerve fibres and local, uh, what we call receptors, just under the feel, under the area. And so the first thing that you will, of course, feel is pain um, as you stimulate those, those nerve fibres. Um, you'll then have uh, a sort of a, a reflex reaction that, that will... Uh, probably reduce, release some adrenaline depending on how hard somebody's pinched you and you'll feel that as an increase in heart rate as a response to the pain. I've got to say when I pinched myself, when I said earlier that I pinched myself, I pinched myself in a metaphorical sort of way, never to actually inflict pain. 
But but there are different kinds of pain sensations, aren't there? I mean, there's a or, or nerve sensations, isn't it? Where there, uh, there's the light are, touch and others. And um, some of those things are normal. Actually, it's it's kind of interesting. I guess I take an engineer's ta- uh, view of this, but a lot of the basic functions in your body are actually the response to mechanical forces. So everyone at the moment is sitting there listening to us talk because the there are little tiny hairs in their inner ear that are vibrating, um, and as they bend, they actually uh, create a nerve impulse from your inner ear into your brain and so that's actually at the very basic level a mechanical thing and um and i guess there's a lot of processes in the body including the sense of touch uh and how your gastrointestinal system is regulated and and a whole range of other things that actually rely on mechanical forces in the body uh, now, we're going to be talking about uh, the inner ear in later when we bring you an interview that we did with uh, Debbie, whose son suffered a condition called hydrocephalus or hydrocephalus, depending on how you want to put it. But before we go on to that, um, just a wee bit more about your background. So you, you went to university and you got interested in mechanical engineering? Indeed, yes. So my, my undergraduate degree is in mechanical engineering. Um, and then uh, by that stage I had decided that I wanted to apply that to um, to medical problems, so understanding you know, how to solve mechanical problems related to, to the body, basically. So I then uh, went and did a... I got a Fulbright scholarship and I went and did a PhD uh, in the US, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and studied spinal cord injury. So try, just understanding how uh, the spinal cord actually gets damaged in, in spinal cord injury and, and how the mechanical forces actually affect the spinal cord. And did you find that um, being a female doing this, that you're in a male-dominated field? In the sort of the, the biomedical engineering area, it, it's a little bit more even, but certainly in um, when I came back to Australia and was working in a mechanical engineering department at the University of Sydney for several years, um, certainly that was very male-dominated. Right. So I think we might move into the phone interview that I did earlier with Debbie. Mm-hmm. Now, in this interview, she describes what happens to her son, Lachlan, and... Quite an interesting experience. I don't know how common this is, but we'll talk more about that in a moment. So uh, here's uh, now Debbie. Now, Debbie is a writer to the Canberra Times. She wrote me a question on hydrocephalus, which is how I met Lynn, uh, because Lynn was the expert who answered this question for us. So I'm interviewing Debbie, and your son's name is Lachlan. That's correct. And tell me about Lachlan. What was the first thing you noticed about Lachlan that, uh, that something wasn't quite right with him? He complained of having a sore ear. He'd been to a swimming carnival a week, 10 days prior, and I just thought, oh, there's obviously a bit of water left in the ear. And so I took him along to our local GP. Um, He did a hearing test. There was an infection in the right ear. He got the tuning fork to do a hearing test. No sound could be heard in the right ear. So he's profoundly deaf in the right ear. Profoundly deaf in the right ear. And had you ever noticed anything about him prior to the age of 13? Only that the TV would be a little bit loud and we would always say, can you turn it down? And took no notice. So there was a hint of something going on there. Yeah, yeah, but other than that, nothing at all. And then this, our local doctor was then very concerned that there was no hearing level at all in the right ear, the left ear had a little bit of hearing but not a great deal he then sent us over to another doctor straight away within two days we were elsewhere and there was no explanation as to why there was 
lack of hearing. Uh, two weeks later, he, Lachlan was complaining of a severe, sharp stabbing pain in the ear, in the right ear, so we're back to the local GP. No explanation given. The infection had spread through to the left eardrum, which caused less level of hearing. And then it was um, our local GP then suggested, I think we're looking into MS because it's definitely nerve damage, hearing loss and not middle ear so this, hearing loss. this is MS multiple sclerosis? Multiple sclerosis, yes. Yes, yes. And then, um, of course, I became a little bit alarmed. Been talking to other people and they suggested, how about you get an MRI done to see what's going on inside the head? Anyway, we were backwards and forwards for five months to different doctors trying to work out how can I be a mother of a 13-and-a-half-year-old son and not realise that he was deaf. And then it wasn't until we met a very good paediatrician. He then organised us for Lachlan to have an MRI. He did reassure us there is definitely no MS. And um, we did that on the... this. We met with this paediatrician on the 9th of May 2005 went back to Wagga on the 12th of May 2005 for the MRI to be done and we met with a neurologist that afternoon after the MRI was done and the neurologist came from Sydney. So mo most med medical practitioners didn't really know what they were seeing in the first instance? No, none at all, none at all. And the paediatrician said, you really need to see a neurologist, a neurologist will know what's going on. And then when we, the MRI was done on a Thursday morning, we met with the neurologist Thursday afternoon and he, he said to us, he said, look, I'm not worried about the hearing loss at this stage, I am more concerned about the communicating hydrocephalus. And both of us were in total shock and we said, excuse me, what is that? And that's when he explained about the excess fluid and, and the dangers and, and every, the, the total change of life, really, once, once you've been diagnosed with this. Anyway, he then explained as to what can, what, what can be done to, to help ease the pressure on the, the excess fluid to take it away. And he said, look, the hearing loss we can come to later. But anyway, we'll get him to Sydney. We will do the operation to insert a shunt to take the excess fluid off the brain. Okay, so headaches, hearing loss. Any other symptoms? None at all. None at all? None at all. And what was the having the shunt, what was that procedure like? Uh, very scary. Yeah. Very scary. Um, you meet with the neurosurgeon the night before and he explains the risks involved of going into the brain for any surgery is just highly, highly risky and to be to be told this is a parent it just leaves you absolutely speechless because you don't know whether or not your child's going to survive the next day anyway the operation was three and a half hours to insert the shunt into the brain and and he's got a catheter that runs from the brain to his peritoneal cavity in the abdomen where the cerebral fluid releases and it's absorbed back into the body Two, two days after the shunt was inserted, this is all four days after being told of his illness. Two days later, Lachlan wanted to go down to the school at the hospital. So I took him down to the school. Within 15 minutes, he was vomiting, screaming in agony. And everybody thought, oh, no, the shunt is blocked. The shunt is blocked because shunts can become blocked. Mm -hmm. And we're back up into, into the ward to get the, the neurosurgeons in to look at him and, and everything else. Um, and, and Lachlan's condition just deteriorated so quickly, 
so, so quickly in a matter of minutes. And um, I thought he was having a stroke. That's, that's how the symptoms became and that's how he was becoming with being limped down one side of his body and, and it was not very nice at all to, to witness. Um, later that afternoon, he, he was taken elsewhere for a hearing test. His hearing had returned. Really? Really. In his right ear? In his right ear. His hearing had returned in the right ear. And by four o'clock that afternoon, Lachlan was the talk of the hospital. This has never happened. Never happened. Lachlan apparently is the first known case in Australia to have gone deaf because of hydrocephalus. Wow. And yeah, wow. And, and what's he like now? Within three months, his hearing levels in, in, in both ears became normal. Yeah? With, within three months of getting the shunt inserted. And so he's now 19, I think? 19 years old now. And hearing what, level is fine. And any other symptoms now? None whatsoever. So he's pretty well cured as far as you can tell? Yes, yes. But if, there's a, if the shunt becomes blocked... It, it's major crisis time. It's get him to neurosurgery teams ASAP. And another thing he's been diagnosed with is um, scoliosis, and oh. that is because of the hydrocephalus. Oh, that's curvature of the spine. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So that has happened because of the hydrocephalus, because of the pressure. And it was just incredible because it made it very hard for Lachlan to have the hearing test because of the probes and things they have to put on around the head because Lachlan's incision is right behind his right ear as to where the shunt was inserted right in the skull. And, of course, there was a lot of swelling and stitches and, and everything else. So Lachlan found it very, very... And plus being vomiting and, and everything all day, he found it very hard to have the hearing test. You know, mm. because I can remember coming home from Sydney. We were flown to Sydney... Oh, this was our third flight back in a period of four months with major problems. And I had a girlfriend of mine say to me, wouldn't it be easier, Deb, if that piece of plastic was out of him and he was deaf again, he, he could live his life? And I've looked at her, I said, that piece of plastic comes out of Lachlan. I said, he dies. Yeah. You know, the shunt is what's keeping him alive yeah. because it's taking the excess fluid off the brain. And that was Debbie and talking about her son, Lachlan, and a condition called communicating hydrocephalus. We're going to get into the nub of that in a moment. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Two Double X. My name is Rod, and my guest today is Professor Lynn Bilson, who's Pref Principal Research Fellow at Neura. Who's who are Neura, by the way, Lynn? Research Institute um, in Sydney, in, actually located in Randwick, um, where most of us focus on various aspects of the nervous systems of the brain and spinal cord and, and how that works. All right, now let's have a bit of look at what was going on in that interview there. So Debbie's describing this condition called hydrocephalus, but to give a bit of background information, can you tell us a little bit about the basic shape and basic morphology of the brain? Sure. So your brain has two parts. Um, which I guess most people are aware of, the left and the right. Um, and what most people are not aware of is, is deep down in the middle of the brain um, are two regions, or well, actually four regions called the ventricles. And there's two large ones uh, on either side of the, the brain, um, and they're full of fluid called cerebrospinal fluid, which we'll call CSF for short. Um, and that fluid actually um, is made in these ventricles, in these spaces deep in the brain. 
and then it flows out of those spaces through a series of little tiny tubes actually uh, out over the surface of the brain and it gets absorbed at the surface of the brain. Now the purpose of this fluid is to, um, to take nutrients and waste products from in, inside the ventricles around the brain out and get rid of them but it also um, is the fluid that your brain floats in. So it actually acts to protect and cushion the brain when you move around so that when you shake your head, your brain doesn't uh, bang against the inside of your skull. <laughs> I feel like that a lot of days. But, uh, so basically it's a shock absorber system. Yeah, it's basically it works as a shock absorber system. And uh, it also it, it turns the fluid over quite regularly, so a few times a day, um, just to keep everything clean and take away any excess um, um, metabolic products or stuff that's made in the cells that needs to be removed. Oh, so it's also got uh, like a cleaning function? You mean it's, yeah, it's it cleaning? Yeah. Uh, is this shock absorbing on the outside of the brain as well, around the skull? Indeed. In fact, that's its biggest, its biggest function is actually to protect, to, the brain floats it. So it actually, there's a thin layer of fluid around the outside of your brain and also around your spinal cord. It's all connected. Um, that actually protects the brain from, from uh, being injured by movements of the head and in, and actually touching the, ver- the inside of the skull and, and so on. And over the top of that fluid is, is a series of um, membranes um, of varying toughness um, that also help to keep everything in the right place. Ah, now, have you ever looked at uh, motorcycle helmet design? Because I remember a few years ago there was a discussion saying that the focus of a motorcycle helmet is on impact but not particularly on the rotation of the skull. So your head hits the ground, oh, I hate to say this, but uh, the brain spins inside the skull and that actually is a cause of a lot of brain damage. It does. So there are two different um, sort of common mechanisms of brain injury and one is um, the result of, of hitting something straight in a line um, and helmets do that uh, quite well. In very severe injuries, um, you can actually have, the, if the head is rotating at the time that it hits, say the ground, if you come off your motorcycle and your head is rotating, then your brain has a sort of a rotational inertia or momentum. And while the helmet can actually damp the, uh, the, the, the main force and spread that out over a longer period of time, which helps, it, it, doesn't, it isn't really able to stop that rotational motion and that can still cause injury. On the other hand, the motorcycle helmets do st- and bicycle helmets do still um, reduce that peak force quite a lot. Um, and that's a, that's a piece of basic physics which says that um, if you can spread the amount of time that you, you slow the brain down over, that reduces the force that's applied to the brain. And the helmets still do that, so they still do have some effect, um, even though they can't, they can't actually um, remove all of that rotation. There are some interesting new designs that, uh, that I've seen um, being promoted even in, for football helmets and even for motorcycle helmets um, by a colleague of mine in Canada, actually, which are aimed at trying to, to uh, have a rotational component to that slowing inside a helmet as well, where it actually controls the rotation of the head inside the helmet. So there are some new designs coming out that might actually be able to deal with both issues. Oh, I hope so, because uh, actually when I'm not on the radio um, and doing other things, I'm a motorcyclist, so I'm very interested in that one. Now, Debbie's question to the Canberra Times was about hydrocephalus or hydrocephalus. What is it? Okay, so there are two ways you, well, it's probably more, but there's two common ways that you can, you can get hydrocephalus. Um, those, the big ventricles, the big spaces inside the brain, uh, drain out through little tiny tubes 
Um, and if those get blocked, then obviously the fluid can't get out. So what you've got is, is like a tank where you continue to pour water in because the fluid's still being made in there, but it can't get out. And so the, the ventricles expand and they compress the brain. That's one kind, and that's called obstructive, where the fluid flow is obstructed. On the other hand, if those fluid little tubes are open, the fluid can still flow out. But if there's a problem with absorption at the surface of the brain, um, then you've got something called communicating hydrocephalus, which is what, um, what Debbie's son had. And that can be caused by a number of different things. Um, for example, you can have it um, when people can have a brain injury and you can actually get blood over the surface of the brain that stops the fluid from being absorbed. And um, essentially what happens there also is the fluid backs up, the ventricles uh, expand and they compress the brain tissue. And the, obviously the brain tissue is not that fond of being compressed uh, and you can block the neural function of some of the nerves in the brain and um, you can get uh, various symptoms. So that's a physical cause. Yep. Uh, are, are there chemical causes such as a salt balance or something like that? Um, there's not a lot known about, the, about some of these other causes. Um, it's it thought that most of the problem, you can have problems with, um, with the veins into which, the, so the fluid inside that fluid space over the surface of the brain, that fluid is absorbed back into the bloodstream in a place called the sagittal sinus through little tiny uh, sort of wiggly things called villi. And uh, if there's problems with the, the blood vessels for some reason and you, you don't get the fluid absorbed back into the blood vessels there, that can cause a problem as well. So with the injuries you mentioned, uh, might there be like a physical injury or could it be, does it happen after a stroke sometimes? Yeah, they can. Um, so basically anything that can block the flow of the CSF into that area where it's absorbed can call this, cause this. So it, it could be um, a stroke. Usually the, the stroke, uh, a strokes tend to bleed into the brain um, rather than over the surface. But there are a number of other kinds of um, bleeds where you can have, uh, there's a lot of blood vessels that go over the surface of the brain and if, if they're ruptured for any reason, which can be a physical injury or it, or it can be um, some other cause, uh, and sometimes for no apparent reason at all, um, that can actually block that space and cause this problem. Now in Lachlan's case, that's Debbie's son, mm -hmm. he had hearing loss as well. That's quite unusual, I believe. Yeah, well it's, it's unusual, it's very unusual to be the main symptom. Um, so... It turns out um, that if you go and you look at people who've had uh, hydrocephalus and you check their hearing, quite a lot of them, and them actually do have hearing loss. But generally people who have hydrocephalus have uh, other problems that are more severe. And so I think the reason that it's, it's considered an unusual symptom is simply because it's just not recognised. Most people have gait disturbances or terrible headaches or dizziness um, and things which are, are generally of more concern. And so... Mild changes in hearing um, are generally not noticed. Somebody uh, did actually do a study where they looked at a whole series of patients having neurosurgery and they found that, that um, they did actually, most of them did have uh, changes in hearing or a substantial proportion of them did have changes in hearing. Well, I actually have a related condition and that uh, about a year and a half ago I got a virus, just a regular sort of head cold. I felt a little bit off colour for a day or two, but the Blasted thing got into my cochlea, and uh, now the specialist has told me that it's due to fluid pressure inside the cochlea. So I've lost a big chunk of hearing, low frequency hearing in my right ear. Is that comparable to what's happening in the hydrocephalus? 
Okay, well, the end result is probably not so different. Um, the pressure, if you get pressure built up in the inner ear, and there's two sections of the inner ear, so there's, there's the inner one which is covered by a thick membrane and there's an outer one between that and the bone, and you can get high pressure in either of those. So in your case, that was due to a virus and inflammation probably in the inner ear itself, so the source of it was actually in the inner ear. Um, in Lachlan's case, it's much more likely that, that the uh, pressure actually was transmitted from inside his skull into his inner ear. So the, the two fluid compartments that I just mentioned, both of them actually uh, are connected through the skull bone into the, the main part of, of the, the skull, the cranium where the brain sits. And so it, you can actually get pressure transmitted through into the inner ear from the skull, from inside the skull. Okay, now the good news for Lachlan... Uh, contrary to my news, which is bad in that my hearing loss is permanent, but uh, Lachlan has had a happy story so far, and it was actually treated successfully. So Debbie talks about a shunt. What's, what's going on there? Okay, so what they've done is, is a shunt is, is basically uh, a tube with a valve in it um, that drains the fluid from inside those, so in, inside his head when the ventricles enlarged and were compressing his brain and transmitted that fluid, in, that fluid pressure into his ear and caused his hearing problem. What they do is they put a tube into the ventricle in the brain and basically drain the fluid off um, and they drain it off. It can be, I'm not sure where Lachlan's was drained off to, but it can be drained off into the abdomen or into the... Um, into the into the uh, heart into the abdomen in his case in, I think into the abdomen in his case and um, and that actually just basically pulls all that excess fluid out so that the, the ventricles can then contract and relieve the pressure on his in, inside his skull and therefore relieves the pressure in his inner ear if the pressure hasn't been there for too long um, then the nerves can actually recover um, and in Lachlan's case it, it it sounds to me at least like it was actually the nerves that were being compressed rather than necessarily the whole uh, inner ear itself. In your case, it sounds like the whole inner ear was being compressed and that damaged the nerves, the actual hair cells that vibrate. Um, and so when that pressure is relieved, then the nerve cells start to function again and he gets his hearing back. Um, similarly, for, for most patients who have hydrocephalus, they have symptoms associated with the brain tissue itself being compressed and that can be a range of things from problems with walking to uh, problems with thinking and, and speech and, and cognitive problems. Um, and uh, and when, when it's successfully treated, they usually get most of that function back. But if the nerves have been compressed for a very long time and the pressure's been there for a very long time, then they, they often will not regenerate and not come back. So... You may not always get all of that function back. Uh, so it's been good so far. So this little tube, of course, and Debbie mentions that she is very alert to the possibility of the thing being blocked. So inside the brain, and actually getting the thing inside the brain must be a fairly complicated task because how you poke the thing in there without damaging stuff as you go in... Well, that's why neurosurgeons have to train for about 12 years to be allowed to do these things. Uh, They're very clever. They work very hard. Yeah, just the thought of doing it just makes me squeamish. Um, would it have been done while the, he was awake or would it have been you know, one of those ones where they're probing uh, because you can't feel inside the brain once it's... Yeah, it's no, they, they would have done it uh, while he was asleep yeah. um, and they MRI beforehand so they know exactly what they're dealing with and where they're, where they're trying to, to move them. But they, they thread it up through those little tubes that I was talking about into, 
into the ventricle. So they, they thread it up from um, where they've got access to. So they open the skull up and they thread the, the, the shunt up into the ventricle. Uh, so you're minimising the brain damage, tissue damage on the way in. Correct, yeah. I mean, they, they don't put a, a shunt through the brain tissue itself. They, they try and use the passageways that are there. Ah, uh, um Okay, so now the next concern then is that the thing gets blocked. So the tip of the of the shunt must have what does it look like? Is it just like a bit of a pipe poked in, or what? Uh, it's essentially it's a pipe that has a little valve in it, which is usually the modern ones, which are, have, um, means that they only open above a certain pressure. Um, if you drain too much fluid out, the ventricles can actually completely collapse, and that causes its own problems. So they generally have a little valve in them um, along the shunt that actually controls pressure so once the pressure gets above a certain level it drains the fluid out um, but they can easily get blocked they're quite small and fine and it's the you can get um, protein from in the cerebrospinal fluid so chemicals from in the cerebrospinal fluid itself can actually adhere to the shunt and build up over time and block them um, and they can also get um, cells from in the fluid attached to it and they can also get infected um, so many patients with hydrocephalus will have multiple revision operations to have their shunts um, replaced over their lifetime. Oh, so he'll have to go back for a service? He may, yeah. Well, they won't do anything unless he has a problem, of course, but he would need to be monitored so that, that they can keep an eye on him. And if he has any symptoms, whether it might be hearing or headaches or, or something else um, that might be associated with that, then, um, then they'll whack him back in and, and have a look at it. So now you've been doing some research into this sort of thing, have you? What, what's your interest here? Okay, so my interest is, is uh, really trying to understand um, how the hydrocephalus actually occurs and from a mechanical perspective what the pressure is doing to the brain and why when you've got some, you know, it's fairly obvious what happens when, the, when you've got those tubes blocked and why the pressure builds up. But in communicating hydrocephalus where the fluid can still drain out of the brain, it's not really that clear why the ventricles actually um, enlarge the way they do and what are the forces that are actually driving that. So we've been working with um, some neurosurgeons uh, over a long period of time and um, trying to understand actually what the mechanisms are and whether we can actually um, work out which patients will benefit most from which treatment. So there are a number of different treatments for different situations in hydrocephalus and because shunts are problematic um, there are alternatives so there's one where they actually create a little hole in the in through the brain actually in the floor of, of that ventricle space so the fluid can um, basically go directly uh, and by, directly out to the surface of the brain and be absorbed um, and that works for some people and not for others and in there are as another form of the disease also which is a a subset of the communicating hydrocephalus that Lachlan had where um, there doesn't seem to be any pressure and it's very difficult, it tends to happen in older people. They do respond to shunting, so they do respond to having this tube put in and they get better, um, but it's quite difficult when you look at an MRI to tell the difference between a person, an older person who has what we call normal pressure hydrocephalus and an older person who has... Um, a, a degenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease which also ends up having large ventricles because of loss of brain tissue. So we're looking at trying to work out whether we can help the surgeons predict who's going to respond better to um, different types of treatment. Uh, sounds like a very complicated piece of work. Um, using, so using MRIs, using 
what's your method here? Do you okay? So we use MRIs. So we we and we use uh, computer modelling. So we then create a a computer model of the person's brain, and we can simulate the fluid flow, and we can simulate. Um, the different types of treatment and look at what, what's likely to happen. We're, we're using a, a new kind of MRI that we've developed um, that allows us to measure how stiff the brain tissue is uh, and trying to see whether one of the differences might be differences in the stiffness of the brain tissue, um, which might then be able to push back more or less against uh, small pressures uh, in, that, in, that, um, in the ventricles. So as, as blood flows into your brain, um, the 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 blood vessels fill up and the brain expands a little bit and that helps to actually push the fluid out of the ventricles and down through the system. And we're, we're looking at if there are changes in the timing of that, whether that actually means um, that it's easier or harder for the, for the brain to actually push that fluid out and uh, whether or not that can actually um, be, play a role in, in actually why some people get uh, hydrocephalus and some people don't. Um, how common is it? It's actually pretty rare. Um, the... the I don't. I can't actually remember the numbers off the top of my head, but um, it is quite rare. In the most common most common uh, scenarios, actually, uh, children being born with hydrocephalus, so um, they have uh, various problems in utero, and they can actually have uh, bleeding in the brain, and they can be born with it, or they just uh, happen to be born with those little tubes, the uh, the aqueduct. Uh, being very narrow and, and easy to be obstructed. Um, and so for most people that's the case. It does increase with age and obviously uh, I also mentioned before that it can occur with injury. So people who have a brain injury uh, where there's bleeding in the brain can mm. also cause blockages. Mm. And when I did look up this on the internet, I saw these quite disturbing pictures of babies with heads the size of watermelons. It's, it's, that's probably quite unusual to get at that extreme, I would imagine. Uh, it is, especially these days because um, people tend to, uh, because of all of the modern scanning and screening techniques for babies where they have ultrasounds, one of the things they, that's one of the things they look for when they, have ultrasound, when they do an ultrasound when a woman's pregnant. Um, and so they would notice if the baby's head was very large in utero and uh, they would actually take steps to to actually manage it as soon as the baby's born and, and, and medically stable. Okay, we're going to break to a track now, and this one is appropriately titled Work Up This Morning by Alabama. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod. Professor Lynn Bilston is my guest today. We're talking about things in the brain and mechanical things to do with the body. And when we come back after this one, we're going to play an interview that I did earlier with Carl, who talks about sleep apnea in a very unexpected way that he found to uh to cure it so uh, here's alabama and woke up this morning all right so you've had this experience right it's been a long day you want to go to bed and get a good night sleep and you wake up in the morning and you go Gee, I could really do with a good night's sleep. Now, I'm talking to someone here named Carl, and Carl's got an interesting story about this. So, Carl, I understand that at some point you were waking up in the morning feeling really sleepy. What happened? Yeah, um, basically sleep apnea, um, which is where um, you start um, choking during the sleep and waking yourself up and not getting a very good night's sleep at all. Um, generally, it gets worse in the afternoons, 2 to 3 o'clock. 
tend to find yourself maybe nodding off at the desk or whatever. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty hard. So you found yourself getting really sleepy, mm. and then what did you do? Well, I went and saw a uh, sleep specialist about it, got a, a referral from my doctor, and um, they had me in overnight with all sorts of electrodes and things to test the the levels, and I was told afterwards that um, yeah, I had sleep apnea, that it was quite uh, quite severe, uh, waking up every um, uh, one to two minutes. One to two minutes? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. And you must have been really naked when you, the next day. Well, yeah, but this was every day. This was every day? Yeah. And, and this, these monitors, were they testing your blood oxygen or what, what were they um, doing? All sorts of things, blood oxygen, REM. Um, REM being what the, your actual brain waves? Your, yeah. Uh, so it was an EEG? Electroencephalograph? So. Yeah. Yeah? Sounds about right. Yeah? Uh, and so how long? You just went there for one night? Mm-hmm. And then, and then they came up with a conclusion that you have sleep apnea. Yeah. And the treatment for that normally is a... Um, well, this was about 10 years ago, so it's been a bit of modernisation since, but a, um, a positive air pressure machine, which is a mask that you wear... Um, that blows air into your airways so it doesn't close up and you don't have the problem. Um, now, back at that time, the masks were all based on the mouth. They had none for the nose. Uh, sorry, other way around. They were all for the nose. They had none for the mouth. And so if people were more mouth breathers, it didn't feel as good. Was that you? Yeah, when I put the mask on, I felt almost claustrophobic. I felt like it was suffocating. Now, I don't have claustrophobia normally, but it, it just made a panic set in me, and I just couldn't wear it for more than 20 minutes. Oh. Um, so I had to uh, give up on that, and um, when I was seeking alternatives, I was talking to a friend of mine who did some hypnotism stuff, and he said I should see a hypnotherapist. Well, how did you feel about that? Did it seem a bit fringe? A little bit, yeah, but, but there were other reasons to see one as well, so, and that's, so I, um, I made an appointment and went along, and um, it, was, it was really good, very relaxing, and so not at all intrusive. Or well, well, take me through the process. So you went to see a hypnotist, or a, a hypnotherapist, hypnotherapist beg your pardon, yep. as opposed to the stage performer, which Correct. is not quite the same thing, of course. And so you had an interview, I presume, and described your situation? Yeah, yeah. And there were a few things that I wanted to address, but, um, but that was mentioned as one of them. She hadn't really dealt with it, with sleep apnea before in any way. But um, Yeah. Now, the interesting thing with the hypnotherapy was that it wasn't like you lost control. I didn't feel like I was not present. I heard all the conversations while I was being hypnotised and I did feel like I could respond if I wanted to not this um, stage hypnotism thing of you know you're completely unaware um, at no point did she ever mention anything about the, the sleep apnea or anything like that there was no focus given for that and I suspect that the simply because it had been on my mind and it had been suggested by my friend was enough for for it to start working on me and ever since I had the hypnotherapy I haven't suffered from the um, from being tired in the day the thought was that through hypnotism um, I could encourage my body for my throat not to relax so much so that the muscles would stay um, oh, so it was a post hypnotic suggestion that you would keep the airwave 
open? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, and But it was mentioned by my friend, but then in, enforced through the hypnotherapy, but not directly mentioned. It was just that I was thinking about it during the hypnotherapy and so oh. forth. And it's been 10 years now and I haven't had any of the the symptoms of sleep apnea. Now, I can't prove that it's gone or anything, but I know that I'm not feeling like falling asleep well, at 2 o'clock every day. Well, the fact that you're tired is a pretty good start. Yeah. I just want to go back to the hypnotherapy for a yeah. moment. So did she sit you in a chair? Um, yep. And then a comfortable she, chair. You're right. So you got nice and comfortable, got you relaxed? Yes. Um, it's, it's all done through voice. Yeah. Um, so I guess a, a quiet room, low lighting and so forth. But... And then what did she do? Did she give you instructions? Talk or? you through breathing exercises to slow your breathing and um, uh, just lead you in. Um, yeah. Well, how long how long did it take? Before I had you about were, I think. Uh, well, but how long did it take before? What, what's the transition into the hypnotic state? Oh, I mean, only was it? It was only a couple of minutes. It's hour long sessions. And, um, so did you, did you feel particularly different under hypnosis? Did you feel like you were very relaxed? Yeah, definitely relaxed. Disconnected, perhaps? A little, yes. Yeah? And when she made suggestions, did you, did you feel like you were you really wanted to follow her? Or did she make suggestions? Well, that's the thing. I don't actually remember hearing suggestions. I, I, rem- I feel like I was hearing the whole conversation. I'm sure I was, but I didn't hear any obvious suggestions. And I oh, think so that's was, she, was she asking you questions then? No, more just leading me through the the relaxation exercise, putting uh-huh. images in your head. You know, think about a safe place. And, and how many sort of sessions did you have? Oh, between six and eight. Yeah, yeah. And that was ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And nothing since. Nope. Wow, that's amazing. Now, have you ever thought of trying self-hypnosis? I have done a little bit. Yeah? Um, yeah, meditation and, and you know... And does, that, does it help, do you think? You know, with, Sometimes, with yeah. With apnea, or does it just help uh, the, the I, I wasn't state? really trying it for the apnea, just in general. Just so. because it's a general good for your state of mind? Yeah. Yeah, if you... Once you've been through a bit of these uh, meditation-led exercises, if hypnosis, if you can do it, and relaxing yourself, it's very... Um, yeah. very so if you were going to do it yourself, or when you do it yourself, how do you do it? Um, well, I just want to say uh, this is just my experience. I'm not a professional or anything. Um, but I just, um, yeah, sat in a quiet room and, and shut my eyes, slowed my breathing. I like to um, think of my stress flowing out, mm. out through arms and legs and relieving of stress being feeling safe and being in a in a safe place in my mind and just trying to do that for about 15 minutes thinking through that uh, that sounds like an excellent thing and maybe something we can practice during the day <laughs> just to help with the stresses of our work it could be yeah well i'm looking forward to a good night's sleep tonight and i hope you do too carl thank you and good night and you're listening to the fuzzy logic science show here on community radio 2 double x that was carl talking about a very interesting cure for sleep apnea and my guest today is professor lynn bilston who knows a bit about sleep apnea uh, what's your reaction to that uh, description lynn well um I, I think uh, it's clear that the hypnosis is making Carl feel better. Um, the problem is that uh, sleep apnea is 
the result of the tissues around, the soft tissues and the muscles around your throat collapsing during sleep. And it's uh, highly unlikely that the hypnosis is actually doing anything to change that. Um, so there are the two main reasons to treat sleep apnea. Uh, one of those is because people are very sleepy during the day and that's not very pleasant, but also it greatly increases their risk of being in accidents, both industrial accidents but also motor vehicle accidents. Um, so that's one big reason to, to treat sleep apnea. It sounds like Carl is getting some symptomatic relief from that sleepiness from his hypnosis. That might just be because it's, in, it's making him get to sleep more easily, he's more relaxed when he goes to bed um, and therefore he's actually getting a little bit more sleep than he was previously because he's, he feels like he's getting to sleep easier and, and sleeping better. Um, on the other hand, the other side of sleep apnea is that because uh, when you stop breathing, when your throat collapses during the night, um, you, you actually have a low level of oxygen in your bloodstream, so you're not actually breathing in uh, air and getting oxygen. Um, and that repeated uh, loss of oxygen through the night is associated both with a very significantly increased risk of stroke and also uh, heart disease and cardiovascular disease later in life. So that's the other reason that it's, uh, it's it's important that people who have uh, severe sleep apnea actually do get that treated properly. So uh, I guess that, that would be my reaction. There's, I did uh, have a look and I, I, uh, there is no evidence in the, certainly in the medical literature um, to suggest that hypnosis has any benefit for sleep apnea at all. And Lynn's not all that convinced that it's a, uh, uh, it's a real cure, but you mentioned a didgeridoo. What's the story with the didgeridoo? Okay, so there was a really lovely study that was done about five years ago but in Switzerland of all places where um, somebody decided that maybe it would be helpful to try and train the muscles around the upper airway in, uh, in the same way that you might go to the gym and work out to uh, improve the, your muscle strength and, and, and so on um, in your skeletal muscles. The idea was to try and find a way to train and strengthen the muscles around your upper airway so they wouldn't collapse. And these people had the, uh, the idea that if they... They uh, got people to learn to play the didgeridoo, which, of course, requires a lot of very good control of the muscles around your upper airway because of the circular breathing technique where you constantly blow air out and you have to actually breathe in at the same time as you're blowing air out into the didgeridoo. And so they got patients to actually uh, learn to play the didgeridoo and practice. Uh, I think it was... I'm not quite sure how much they had to do, but it was, it was a fair bit. Um, and they actually had a substantial reduction in the severity of their sleep apnea wow. um, as a result. But the thing is, did you, I suppose you don't have to play it well because when I've had a go at a didgeridoo, it's really hard. <laughs> it is really hard. I've had a go to, and in fact, I have to say, I went to a sleep apnea conference a couple of years ago uh, up uh, on the go up up in uh, Cairns, and there were a bunch of international uh, experts on sleep apnea there, and they had a whole bunch of them up there on the stage trying to play the didgeridoo in honour of this study. It was very entertaining. Um, most of them were not very good at all, so it is quite hard, but it it, it is difficult and. The amount of control and the amount of effort that you have to put into those muscles obviously makes a difference. There's been a follow-up study where people have um, actually got patients to do a series of pretty intense um, other types of exercises uh, of the tongue and the airway muscles to try and train the muscles, and it has also has an effect. Um, it's not a very large effect, but it's, it's definitely a useful effect. So you can improve the improve it a bit using that. Uh, but now you, you don't, I presume, have to do the circular breathing technique because that's the really, well, that's one of the really hard things about the didgeridoo. Well, I don't think they've actually dissected out exactly what the, 
the uh, the mm-hmm. critical bit. But that may well be an important part because it, it's that level of control of, of actually controlling your soft palate and the muscles in that, that whole upper airway region that actually seems to be what's needed and maybe you need to be able to do the, the, uh, the breathing to do that. Uh, the amount of time that you had to play the didgeridoo was less than the amount of time that you had to spend doing these other exercises uh, to have an effect. So it may be that that's part of it, but uh, I don't think that's actually known right now. Uh, now, the other thing about a didgeridoo is it's quite a large diameter device. You've got to put, uh, push a lot of air down it, so just the volume uh, is a fair physical effort to do that. Yeah, I suspect it's probably about the amount of physical effort that you have to put into to into the the muscles around your airway that actually strengthens them and and probably stiffens them so they're not as floppy. Now, for our listeners uh, who have a snoring partner or who have been told they snore themselves or who wake up in the middle or wake up in the middle of the night or who go to sleep in the middle of the day, do you have any uh, general advice for them regards sleep apnea? Okay, well, snoring is not the same as sleep apnea. Many people who have sleep apnea also snore um, and... Um, sleep apnea is a more severe form where they actually stop breathing so even though they're still trying to breathe and you can actually in patients you can see the abdomen still going up and down as they try to drag air in but their throat is closed Um, and the best advice for people who have been told that they snore a lot um, and are sleepy during the day um, they should go and see their their doctor and get get a referral to a sleep physician or, or a specialist so that they can see whether they really do have this problem uh, and that's because sleepiness does substantially increase the risk of being in accident um, and it also does have uh, consequences for uh, increased risk of stroke and heart disease. So your your general uh, physical condition is important. What about your body weight? Ah, well, it, it turns out that obesity, obesity is a big risk factor for sleep apnea. We don't really understand exactly why that is. Um, it's probably partly that you've got more fat around your upper airway and around your throat so you get fat deposits inside the tongue but also on the sides of your throat um, which may uh, help to make your close your airway make your airway smaller but it may also be um, and some of the research work that we're doing is looking at this at the moment um, it may also be that the fat in the in the muscles around your upper airway makes them floppier and they're and softer and therefore more likely to collapse during sleep Ah, and what about, do you think it might affect your posture as you're asleep as well? Uh, it does. So there's been some good studies that, that have been done um, by some people in Western Australia actually uh, looking at body posture. So sleeping on your side tends to be better. Um, and in fact, one of the traditional treatments for people who only uh, tend to have uh, sleep apnea when they lie on their back is actually to sew tennis balls into the back of their pyjamas, put the tennis balls in a sock and sew that to the back of their pyjamas <laughs> so they can't lie on their back when they're sleeping. Oh, really? That's, that's generally often better tolerated than uh, the CPAP machines, which are basically a mask that blows air into your, into your nose and upper airway during your sleep. Yeah, wearing one of those sounds like it'd be quite uncomfortable. Yeah, it's generally, uh, it's generally not... not liked by people but the people who particularly have severe symptoms and are very sleepy often think it's worth it um, because they they feel awake and they have energy all day uh, and even if they have to wear this kind of thing at night that they don't particularly like it's worth it for that yes and now um, during the uh, music there we were discussing a condition that my dad had which was called acromegaly 
which was caused uh, the soft tissue in his body was growing excessively because of a pituitary gland tumour, and he had sleep apnea because it was affecting his soft palate. Uh, so earlier we were talking about helmets and safety and accidents and so on. Now, the other major thing that you've done in your work, or perhaps even the major focus of your work, is uh, seat belts. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, I, I guess arising out of my interest in, in spinal injury, um, I've done quite a lot of work over the last decade or so looking at uh, injuries and car crashes. And we've done a lot of work particularly looking at children uh, and what's the safest way to restrain children when they're travelling in, the, in cars. Um, what's the right child restraint? How do we need to use those child restraints to make sure that children get the best protection? Um, and so a lot of that work's gone towards the new child restraint laws that came into effect last year across Australia, requiring children up to the age of seven to use a child restraint or a booster seat. Um, but we're also are looking at uh, adults and older people who are sitting in the rear seat of cars at the moment, trying to understand how we can improve the protection for people who sit in the rear seat of cars. Cars have really uh, improved enormously in the last um, 20 years, particularly in the front seat with all the airbags and advanced safety systems in your seatbelts um, and things like that, that actually greatly improve the outcome for people sitting in the front seat. But the rear seat really hasn't changed that much. Um, we've got three-point seat belts in the rear seat, but that's about it. So we're, we're trying to look at the moment at how we can actually improve protection for people who do sit in the rear seat um, so we bring them up to the standard of the front seat. Now, when you mention child restraints, especially in the back seat, uh, are you referring to aftermarket add-ons to the car or, or manufacturer-supplied ones? In Australia, the vast majority uh, of child restraints are add-ons. There are a small number of vehicles that have um, integrated restraints in the back seat, so there are a couple of brands of vehicles that actually have them built in. Um, and I think um, either are fine. The integrated restraints at the moment... Um, don't have to meet any particular standards and, and I think that's something that's being worked on by the government but the standards for the add-on ones in Australia are very rigorous so uh, as long as people use them correctly they do a really good job. And how much more do you think can be done? Is it like a, are we like substantially there or are there great gains waiting to be had? Well I think we're at the position where we know what a lot of the answer is um, and I think we we do a really good job in Australia at the moment for, for children up to about two and we're increasing, um, increasingly getting it right for kids up to about age seven. Um, our researchers suggest that, uh, in fact, most children aren't big enough to sit properly uh, in a seat belt in, in a car without a booster seat until they're sort of between 10 and 12, depending on how tall they are. And I guess that's another gap that we still need to, to actually um, close. Um, so while we know what, what the right restraints are, and I think we, we know that the restraints we have do a really good job, one of the big things that we don't, um, that, that a lot of parents aren't aware of is how important it is to use the restraint correctly. And if you have a child using, for example, a seatbelt, um, particularly if a child's a bit small for a seatbelt, you'll often see them put the, the shoulder belt under their arm or behind their back because it's uncomfortable. Um, and that's, what, that's a form of what we call misuse or incorrect use. And that's a really big deal because it means that that seatbelt's now not able to do its job and protect your child the way it needs to. Um, so I guess that's the next, that's, that's part of what we're working on at the moment as well, is trying to find ways to make the restraints easy to use so that parents um, find it easy to use the right restraint and get the right restraint and use it the way it was supposed to be used. Mm. Um, some of the restraints 
are very complicated um, and they can be used uh, all the way from a, a newborn all the way up to a seven or eight-year-old. Um, but there's a whole range of different changes that you have to make to the restraint and the seatbelt has to go in different places and that makes it very complicated for parents. So trying to get uh, parents to know what the right thing is to do and how to do it so that you get the best out of the restraints that we have. I think that's an important part of, of sort of the human side of it. It's more, more the human usage side than necessarily the engineering side of it. Yes, I think that's a really valuable point because a lot of the time we think of solutions being about a new gadget or a technological thing, but so often these solutions are more about the way we use them and about human behaviour. It must be quite sobering. Do you have to look at the uh, the crash results and, you know, those things that happen in the crash test dummies and all that kind of thing? It must be fairly... Yeah, um, um, we do. We both do. Uh, we do our own spirit crash testing of, of stuff. We look at uh, real-world crash tests, which I think is probably the most sobering, is when you when you go out and look at a car that, that somebody's been seriously injured in or killed in um, and work out try to work out exactly what happened and what, what they were doing at the time of the crash and what caused the crash and how the injuries occurred. And it is very sobering. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think that, you know, when you can actually make a difference and you can say, okay, well, this is, this is the problem here. And sometimes you can, you can catch things, um, emerging things that, that nobody's been aware of yet and, and put things in place to say, look, you know, we've seen this injury, it's caused by this, let's tell people not to do this particular thing anymore so that it doesn't happen. Yeah, I'm still surprised by things like, I've got a reasonably late model car and in the inside, above the driver's door, is a handle you know, like a grab handle, and I'm going to get a, uh, a screwdriver and take it off soon because if I'm in, a, in an accident, my head flicks sideways, I'm a fine, I've got an airbag coming out of the steering wheel, but on the side, about head height, or just above head height, is this hard handle. So what yeah, are they doing? Most putting... of those handles are actually not that rigid. Um, they're, they're supposed to be, um, supposed to be uh, energy-absorbing. In most modern vehicles, you'll have not, the airbag will be um, inflate in such a way that you shouldn't make contact with that part of the vehicle. And often cars also have uh, curtain airbags that come down over the window and the, the door rail. The, the biggest concern is, is definitely making impact with things that are very rigid, um, but it would be relatively unusual to have something very rigid right in the zone where your head would be likely to hit. Um, I can't start. I, can't, I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment on your specific car, but generally vehicles are designed so that that's very difficult to happen. Mm, okay, I'm not sure if it's got a side airbag, but one day, and I'll never forget this, I'm, I'm sitting at the traffic lights and there's this car in front of me, it's in a station wagon, and he's got these kids inside the car with him, and he's a tradesman of some sort. There's a milk crate, and on top of the milk crate is a pile of stuff, and I could see a hammer in there. I mean, I don't think this person has any concept of what happens inside a car. The amount of violence and force people get flinged around inside the car during an accident. Uh, that's true, and in fact, uh, I mean, it's relatively unusual, but but it does happen where you get people uh, can be quite severely injured by flying um, things in vehicles. People who have trade vehicles or station wagons um, where they routinely or even infrequently carry quite a lot of heavy stuff in the back really should use what we call a luggage barrier um, which is sort of a mesh shield that comes down um, and stops things heavy things from flying forwards i have seen a very small number of cases where people have been quite severely injured by things uh, flying through and the same thing goes for, for pets so um, you know you've got an unrestrained large newfoundland sitting on your back seat <laughs> you're in a big crash you know that's a 
50, 70 kilos of dog flying into your back um, at, at 100 kilometres an hour, that's a bad thing. Yes, um, well, if you do the sums, if you've got a vehicle travelling at 100 kilometres per hour and it stops in the space of a few of a second or so, you have 100 kilos of Newfoundland dog, uh, which is now a projectile inside the vehicle. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And the same is true of, of other other things that can move around in the vehicle. Um, so you know, anything heavy should be really on the ground, on the floor, um, or in the boot. Um, all behind a luggage barrier. Yeah, well, I think you're right about the modern safety of cars. Now, my wife and daughter had a horrible accident where they were steered off a small country road just doing 100 kilometres an hour, and they ran off into the rough, and they launched themselves off a culvert, and they went end over end twice in the car, and then and on the last flip, the car was coming down to the towards the ground, and my wife said she thought that was it, and she could see the, the dirt flying off the bonnet uh, as they hit the the front of the car on the ground the second time and the car was basically shunted on the boot and on the bonnet twice and uh, it was just a complete pancake but they got out and walked away from that accident and that's a testimony to the research of people like yourselves and so I think that's a wonderful thing and uh, they're very lucky. They, <laughs> it's, the, it's great news to hear that. Very, they're very lucky. Uh, it's yeah, yeah. The, the, con- the, uh, the, ba- the bad consequences of such a story are uh, unthinkable for me. Mm. Okay, well, that brings us to an end of our show today, and I'd like to say very big thank you to uh, you, Professor Lynn Bilston, and next week come back again for more Fuzzy Logic because I'm going to be broadcasting for you a talk that uh, Fiona Wood did a couple of nights ago at the ANU, and she is a bundle of energy, and we interviewed here on Fuzzy Logic a couple of weeks before that, and what she said is there was not a person in the room who was not really amazed and inspired by the energy and the commitment and the dedication of uh, of Fiona. And on a similar note, I really do get a feeling that, uh, Lynn, you are also an inspiring Australian and you're doing wonderful things. So thank you very much for appearing on Fuzzy Logic. You're welcome. And that's it for me, Rod. Catch you next week. <laughs> 